If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, I want, to go, want you to go to Matthew chapter 8 with me this morning. Matthew chapter 8. And I'm going to do my best to preach God's Word to you and still be relevant to the circumstances of what's happened to us personally, to our city and our region in the last week or so, and yet try not to be too cheesy in doing it. Hopefully that'll become abundant because the title of my sermon this morning is called, How Do We Handle the Storms of Life? And as you can see that the slide that Debbie chose probably was a much calmer looking view of what hit this city last Friday. It's hard for me not to do this because we've been shown how our plans and God's plans are different sometimes, and we have to submit to God's plans no matter what we want to do. I was not supposed to be here with you this Sunday. I'm supposed to be over 5,000 miles away in a little church in Kelowna, British Columbia, after having just finished a missions conference for a Bible college called Miller Bible College and Seminary. But uh, last week, Debbie and I flew out of here on a Thursday, got to Toronto, and then Snowmageddon took place here at home. Debbie and I sat in a cottage down in the Muskoka Lakes area and through the video cameras of our security system, watched the snow continuously pile up around our house and checked in with our daughter and our daughter-in-law and our son and just tried to make sure things were okay, checking in with the various different people of this church and watching the snow just come and come and come and come and the wind blow and blow and blow. And then Debbie and I were done and we drove back to Toronto on Sunday and Air Canada booked us on a flight Monday and then Tuesday and then Wednesday and then Thursday and then Friday. And then finally, you know, going in, I had, I had a car rental. I brought the first car rental back and booked another one and then brought that one back and booked another one and had to keep going to the front office of a hotel saying, can I stay for one more night and stay for one more night? And uh, all of those types of things and the roller coaster ride. And then Kathy, when the airport was open on Tuesday, told us to go to the airport and that we had tickets and we were assigned seats. And so Debbie and I went on Wednesday afternoon, got to the ticket counter, and the guy looked at me and said, we've got no record of you having tickets. So you're going to go to the ticket booth. And so you go to the ticket booth. And all the anyway, long story short, we got in about 1 a.m. on Thursday morning and then enjoyed what you have all been enduring since last Friday. With that in mind, let's look at Matthew chapter 8 and look at verse 23. And here's what Matthew talks about where the disciples, who as we learned the last time we were together in church from Pastor Lanny Lowe, who was here from Atlanta, reminded us that the disciples 2,000 years ago are not that different from us as disciples today. Here they are in a boat. Jesus has been doing all kinds of public ministry And Matthew, the converted tax collector, writes in Matthew chapter 8, verse 23, and when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. Now, here's a a phrase that Matthew uses, and behold. That is his trigger term in all of his gospel to say, pay attention. There arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he, referring to Jesus, was asleep. And they, that's the disciples, went and woke him saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he, Jesus, said to them, 
Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? Now, this is a passage that many of you that have gone to church, maybe you grew up in church, maybe you were new to church, this is one of these passages that is often read and preached in our churches. I want to try and bring that passage into the modern vernacular. Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase of Scripture, expresses this in the message like this. Then he, Jesus, got in the boat, his disciples with him. And the next thing they knew, they were in a severe storm. Waves were crashing into the boat, and he, Jesus, was sound asleep. And so they aroused him, pleading, Master, save us. We're going to drown. And Jesus reprimanded them. Why are you such cowards, such faint hearts? And then he stood up and told the wind to be silent and the sea to be quiet, to quiet down. Silence! And the sea became smooth as glass. The men rubbed their eyes astonished. What's going on here? Wind and sea come to heal at his command. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. I don't know about you. I don't know how you have encountered. It was so good to hear Jennifer talk about her experience. And I'm sure that all of you, as I get to talk to you and you, me, had various reactions of how you handled this storm that really, as far as we know, is unlike any snowstorm, one-time snow event that's happened in the history of our city. Basically, when I was telling people in Toronto On all intents and purposes, we experienced here in the city a class three hurricane, but we had snow instead of rain. The way that they class these things, we had uh, sustained wind gusts of almost 160 kilometers an hour with the airport getting 76 or 77 centimeters of snow. Parts of uh, Ken Mount Terrace and Paradise and CBS got us over 93 centimeters of snow, followed by more snow on the Friday night or Sunday night. And so here you have the storms of life. And if you were watching the news or watching Facebook or watching Twitter, I was teasing Chris and and Jennifer as they walked in because Jen posted that picture of Chris shoveling out the front door and Emma's laughing, looking over at her dad. And what I stole that picture off her Facebook and sent that to a number of my friends. And I put in a note, the man standing there is six foot five. And uh, of all the pictures I've posted, that's the one getting the most action. Uh, the most comments of all the things that have happened. But what do you do when you face the storms of life? There was a collage of stories that made the social media around. Good news stories and bad news stories. Wonderful stories of rescue and community on streets and in neighborhoods. And then highlighted by the tragedy yesterday of that young man's body that was found. People that braved and weathered the storm and had no problems and people that lost roofs and house fires where people lost their lives. We had lineups that went for hours and stories of people helping each other, followed by stories of people arguing and fighting and tearing apart a loaf of bread. This is the collision 
of emotions that happens when we are faced with the storms of life. But now bring that into your lives. You see, what has your attitude towards Jesus Christ been like this last seven or ten days? What do you really think of Jesus, who he is, what he did, what he is doing, what he can do? Because I would submit to you that I've thought about my life, our church's life, St. John's, Newfoundland, and everything that we've been dealing with over the last little while. And as I've watched and read, as Matthew and Adam and Dave all wrote blog posts about their own personal experiences with this particular snow and how they learned lessons of what it means about the people of Newfoundland. I want you to know that the passage I read to you this morning in Matthew chapter 8 is actually not about you and I. It's not even about the disciples. It's not about how Jesus can get you out of storms. Matthew chapter 8 is meant to be a message about Jesus Christ. For you to see Jesus in a new way. And just by way of background for me to set this up... If you get a chance to read the book of Matthew, take notice of how Matthew charts the course for you. In Matthew chapter 1 through 4, basically Jesus is authoritatively announced. Remember, the angel comes to Joseph and then he's, and, and all these things that happen. And then the uh, great baptism of Jesus when God himself speaks. Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, Jesus authoritatively speaks. That's the Sermon on the Mount. What you might not realize is then the next three chapters, Matthew chapter 8, 9, and 10, Jesus authoritatively acts. And in Matthew chapter 8, what you get is Matthew sets up his gospel with triplets. There's a set of three miracles and then an explanation, a series of three miracles and an explanation. And when you come to this verse in verse 23, we have a new section of three miracles. But these miracles, like everything so far, are meant to teach us something, not about ourselves, but about Christ. You see, after a snowstorm like this, and Jennifer so aptly did it, we can get self-respective. We start to inspect our lives. We think about how do we handle things. But Matthew wants you to take your life and inspect it in terms of your view of Jesus. You see, to truly follow Jesus anywhere through anything. You must have faith in him. You must love, trust, and want him more than anything or anyone in life. And so if I was going to break this down for you, let me give you a couple of things to take home with you into your afternoon as we anticipate beginning our first full work week after Snowmageddon. All right? Number one is this, in verse 23, when the mundane of life becomes our worst nightmare. How do you handle the storms of life when the mundane becomes your worst nightmare? Think about the last 10 days and what life has been like for you. In fact, I would challenge you, go back and think about the seven days before the last 10 days because that was very interesting for me. We had the forecasts come out that we were going to have quite a snowstorm. And then everybody had an opinion about whether or not this storm would be as bad as forecast. And all the different changes in the models and the systems and all these things. Because it's not like here in Newfoundland, we don't experience snowstorms, yes? We go through snowstorms. I've gone through them my entire life. 
And if you went to Walmart, you were out at Dominion, you were at the gas station, you, you met with people here. I remember the Sunday before talking to people here, and we argued, if it will happen, will it be as bad as they were saying? After all, we've seen a lot of snowstorms come and go, and for the most part, the snowstorms are never as bad as they tell you. My father-in-law's biggest pet peeve with NTV and CBC News is that they'll tell you things like, and we're going to have a snowstorm, and there'll be 5 to 25 centimeters. And you'll hear, and you've got to endure my father-in-law just rant for five minutes about the inability for us to actually tell us how much snow we're going to get. Snowstorms are mundane events for those of us that call Newfoundland home. They come and they go. We shovel or we snow blow, we clean up, we move on. And is not life much like that? We live, we know our battles, we develop our habits, we face what we know is going to come at us, we eat and we sleep, we work and we play, we have our friends, we have our family, we deal with the ups and downs of life, we prepare, we prepare as best we can, and we deal with what we know is going to come at us as life as we know it. And as you see in Matthew chapter 8, over 2,000 years ago, 12 men lived life just like we are. They got in a boat with another man, though, that had come into their life, And just as they were thinking life was mundane and normal and getting used to a new normal, then everything goes for a spin. You see, they're on the Sea of Galilee here in Matthew chapter 8. The Sea of Galilee is 6,000 feet below sea level, near the end of the Jordan River, and it's surrounded by mountains. Mount Hermon is 9,500 feet above sea level to the north, and it was very common, and still very common, for the northerly winds to blow down off the mountain, down through the Judean Jordan Valley, plummeting down into the Sea of Galilee, and when the cold air crashed into the warm air, it would sweep up storms quickly and intensely. In fact, in your passage of Matthew chapter 8, the word storm is where we get the English word for seismic. It's the Greek word seismos. In other words, Matthew is telling us that this storm was so violent, it literally shook the water in the Galilee like one of us might take a glass of water and just twirl it around. And Matthew wants us to pay attention because look at that. He says, behold. So here they are, 12 guys with Jesus, 13 of them in a boat, and it's a first century fishing boat. It's an open boat with a sail. It's not a big boat. It can fit about 20 men with netting and all this. It's covered in waves. Mark's gospel says that the boat was filling up with water so that it would sink. Here are 12 guys going through the ups and downs of life. Four of them at least did this for a living. What about us? We go about living our lives with our work and our family, our school, our relationships, and then bam, in the midst of the mundane of life, you get that call, that email, that visit, that text. Your doctor says, we've gotten the results. And it's not good. I just found out that the man who cuts my hair down at Fogtown, 34 years old, asked his girlfriend to marry him on Christmas Eve. 
just diagnosed with cancer. How many other phone calls have happened like that? You get that Dear John letter. Your job is gone. That government letter from the CRA arrives. Your child leaves you, gets sick. You're struck by an unexpected death or a hurt or a betrayal. Your marriage spirals out of control out of nowhere or you walk through the hurt of divorce. Friends leave you or betray you or move away from you. Parents may be split up and you didn't see it coming. Your car breaks down or your friend is in an accident. Maybe for some of you it's that pregnancy eludes you and you've gotten the news that you cannot get pregnant. For others, maybe miscarriage has devastated you and it came out of nowhere. Bills pile up. You feel overwhelmed and stressed and angry and hurt and scared and devastated. Yep, the storms of life are actually far worse than massive snowstorms, aren't they? But it's the things we do to ourselves or others do to us or we do to others. It's the trauma we didn't see coming, never thought would come, and now it's here crashing over you wave after wave. Remember two weeks ago, Lanny kept saying that the disciples of 2,000 years ago are not unlike us today. Think about these guys as they got in this boat. They've been following Jesus. They were doing what they were supposed to do, yet things only get bad. Following Jesus didn't turn out to be the rose garden for these guys. Have you experienced any of this? Have you walked through this? I know I have. There are times when my life is just tickety-boo going along, and then all of a sudden, bam, things happen, and the mundane become my worst nightmare. And I've had moments throughout my life, moments especially as a pastor, where I have felt like calling out the words of Asaph in Psalm 73. Psalm 73 is one of my go-to psalms. When Asaph struggled with when he looked at the way of life and it looked like evil wins and good doesn't win. And he says, behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. And he says, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands and innocent. For all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. And this is what I relate to. He says... And if I speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. You know what he's saying? He's saying sometimes when the waves and storms of life have been crashing over me and I have felt like it's all in vain, if I ever said out loud what I was thinking in my head, people would stop believing in God. Have you been there? Where your doubts are there and your questions are there and you thought... Man, I, 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 if I ever said out loud what I'm thinking or feeling right now. But I'm glad that this psalm, the reason this is such a hopeful one, is because he keeps going and he says, but when I thought to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. I can tell you one thing before God as my witness. No matter what I face in life, the storms of life, the ups and downs of life, everything, I can honestly tell you one of the ways I know my relationship with Jesus is so real, I can't wait to gather like this on Sunday with you. This is the safest place on earth for me. This is where no matter what's happening in life, I get perspective on eternity. Because this is a preview of coming attractions. 
This is supposed to be a preview that one day we are going to gather as brothers and sisters and a family and there will be no more pain, no more sorrow, no more tears, no more storms. Steve preached about this at the last of December. I want you to realize as well that these men were experienced fishermen. You notice they battled it. They didn't turn to Jesus right away. For them to give up meant things must have been pretty bleak. And so you saw that in Snowmageddon when finally the government said, stop everything, pull the plows off the road, let's just stop. They finally admitted, we are experienced in dealing with this stuff. And finally it got to the point where we just said, we can't, we can't do it anymore. And think about all this, in the midst of this storm, Jesus is sleeping. Jesus is sleeping. These guys fear for their lives, and Jesus is sleeping. I think we, get, we forget about the humanity of Jesus because we're so focused on his deity. Here, can you imagine how exhausted Jesus must have been to be asleep through this kind of storm? This was a life-threatening storm. There's no doubt that this water must have been hitting Jesus too. And yet here he is asleep on a hard planked boat with nothing more maybe than a cushion for his head. And look at the disciples. Again, these experienced fishermen growing up on this lake. They've known it. They know its smells. They know everything about it. And no doubt they had faced storms before. Likely each of them had their favorite story. Oh, you should have been here in AD 01 with the great Galilean storm of that day. How many of us, by the time the summer comes around, will have our stories about Snowmageddon? If you talk to anybody that's lived here for any length of time, those of you that experienced this for the first, some of you weren't here for the great winter of 2000 when they had something like 20 feet of snow in a winter. Some of you are old enough to remember the great ice storm of 1984, the last time St. John's called a state of emergency. I remember that. I was just turning a teenager, and we didn't have school for two weeks. We all have our stories. But I can tell you this, never have I experienced a storm in Newfoundland where I feared for my life. But I can tell you, I've experienced the storms of life where I feared sleep and I was afraid to wake up the next morning. Could I handle what was going to come? They tried everything and it had failed. The boat is filling up. It's hopeless. They're going to drown. And yet, as Lanny told us two weeks ago, and I want you to see here, this is exactly where God wanted them to be. Remember, we were told, Brother Lanny very graciously told us that the, the mantra out there that God will never let you uh, experience anything you can't handle is not true. God will often give you things you can't handle. Because if you could handle everything, then why do you need God? This was exactly there, where they were. What do you do when that happens, when you feel like I'm taking on more than I can handle? Or rather, let me ask you, to whom do you turn? Do you remember how Matthew tells us Jesus ended his sermon? Look back if you're there at Matthew chapter 7. Interestingly, Jesus finishes his sermon on the mount with that wonderful little lesson of the wise man and the foolish man. 
Remember, we have that song in Sunday school, right? The wise man built his house upon the rock, right? And the foolish man built his house upon the sand. But did you notice at the end of it, the one constant for the foolish man and the wise man is storms. When the rains came down and the floods came up and the rains came down and the floods came up, everybody experiences storms. Life is hard. According to Jesus, the result of the storm is not how do you get out of storms, it's who is your life built on as you face storms. It's that simple. You see, Satan and the world want you to believe that life is like a Hallmark movie or like a Disney, the beautiful little sunset as the television screen moves to a little dot and it says either the end or, and they all lived happily ever after. And yet you know yourselves so often that's not true. Because you know that there are challenges and pain and tears and sacrifice. And often almost, I need you to know you can expect God to bring us right to the point of desperation. And why does he do that? Because he wants to get our attention. You see, these 12 disciples had run out of options. There was nothing more to do. All they had now was a Hail Mary. (laughs) They turned to Jesus. And maybe they thought the guy who could heal lepers and cause the blind to see and healed other all diseases could somehow save them from this storm. And so they cry out to Jesus, look at it. Save us, Lord. We are perishing. Have you ever been there? You're like, Lord, would you just make it stop? And I don't want you to miss this. These aren't weaklings. These are strong, experienced men. These were master fishermen. And I find it ironic. Master fishermen call upon a carpenter's son to help them on the water. You see, desperation will make us do desperate things, won't us? Tragically, though, sometimes we do stupid things. We turn to the wrong things. We turn to the wrong ones. Who of us wouldn't do the same? And this is what you and I need to see. But now notice number two, the cry of fear actually gets rebuked. When the mundane becomes your greatest nightmare, and then on top of that, the cry of fear gets rebuked. Disciples do the right thing. In faith, they turn to Jesus and cry out for help. They call him Lord, by the way. Matthew wants us to know that. They know he can do things no one else can do. They seem to think he can save them. They just begged him to do it. In fact, they've witnessed his power on a consistent basis, right? They've seen him heal the sick, cast out demons, all this. But they've never seen Jesus solve a problem like this one. They're afraid because this situation is out of their control. This was personal. See, at other times when they were going through and watching Jesus perform his miracles, they were there. It's almost like they were his posse, his entourage. They got to be firsthand spectators, but it wasn't personal. This was the first time now this was their life at stake. And they found out and discovered they're no different than everybody else that came to Jesus. And notice what Jesus does. He awakes and he looks at them and they're like, we're perishing. And you would think, oh, I'm here. I am super Jesus. No, he says, why are you afraid, oh, you of little faith? 
And I don't think he yelled it. I think he, he looked at them kind of like maybe a dad does when a kid runs in and says, this is really bad. And dad just goes, son, listen, I got this. What are you all worked up for? My father, I actually still don't know what this expression means. My father used to say to me tons when I go, don't let your pee get hot. The older I get, the more confusing that statement means to me because I, I have no idea what that means because as far as I know, your pee is hot coming out no matter what. Um, but that's what my dad would always say to me. Stephen, don't let your pee get hot. And, and, and it's like Jesus says, why, why are you guys afraid? And look, I don't want you to misunderstand this. Jesus is not displeased because they cry out to him. If you're here this morning and you're a sinner, knowing that crying out to Jesus in confession and repentance from your sin, always Jesus loves. In fact, if you're not saved, if you don't know Jesus personally and relationally, what do you have except to cry out to him? As people lost things this week, when I talk to people where they walk through the trauma of life, whether it's sickness or marital collapse or family dysfunction or whatever it might be, I am often amazed at how unsafe people walk through life without hope. But even in desperation, I want you to know God loves to hear us cry out, to cry out to him. And God loves to hear the cry of his children. And in desperation, these disciples go and they cry out. And I want you to listen to me, Calvary Baptist Church. Jesus does not say what he does here because he's mad that they cried out. Our Bible is filled with men and women who cried out to God, especially when they looked at their circumstances. David said in Psalm 10, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Have you not been there? Isaiah cried out in Isaiah 51, Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in days of old, the generations of long ago. Paul cried out in 2 Corinthians for deliverance from God three times from a thorn in the flesh. You see, Jesus does not, what he, does not say what he does here because he was upset that they cried out. Jesus says what he does because they feared the physical death more than him. And what's more, these guys were not only afraid, they were shocked that Jesus wasn't. Care you not that we are perishing? Why aren't you afraid? That's what Mark in his gospel of this tells us. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Folks, listen. They were afraid because fear controlled their faith. And so Jesus' rebuke is basically saying, Hey, don't you believe in me? And in my power? John MacArthur paraphrases Jesus here as saying, you have seen me perform miracle upon miracle, even though for those who don't trust in me, those who can't even be bothered to thank me. You've seen my power and my compassion, and now you doubt my power over you? Again, remember two weeks ago when Lanny preached that sermon from Matthew chapter 28, and we were told that they gathered on the hill and it said, but some doubted, and Lanny challenged us. What were they doubting? And he concluded they were doubting God's ability to use them to do what they thought was impossible. 
Here, these disciples are doubting that God will save them. You see, to the Christian, even death in this instance would have meant heaven. You see, it was faith ruled by fear. They cried out to Jesus in faith, which was good, but they do so because they're believing they're going to die and that Jesus doesn't care about it. It was a self-preservation kind of faith. By the way, all of this is happening and the storm is still raging. They wake him up and he says, why are you afraid, you of little faith? And the storm is still going on. He still hasn't done anything yet. And notice another amazing act of mercy. Because thirdly, notice the power of Almighty God is displayed. Because actually for me, I, I love this. I grew up reading Westerns. Louis L'Amour was my favorite author of Westerns when I was a teenager. And often, you know, movies and Disney, they, we make very theatrical the, the events and the violence of life, gunshots and fights and all these things. And we've got wonderful sound effects and all of these things. Unless you've been around violence in real life and you realize it's very anticlimactic. Because you don't have music here as you read this. You don't have Jesus standing as if this was a movie and the, the orchestra would play and he would stand up and put one foot out and get to the foot of the boat, no doubt, and look into, the, into the, the storm and rebuke it and you'd see these clouds swirl like the Ten Commandments tries to tell us every Easter. Rather, Matthew just says, Jesus got up and said, he rebuked the wind and the sea and then there was a calm. It's like, dun, dun, dun right? From fear of death to just glass. And you got to understand the Greek construction. It's the reason why I read the message for you. Because basically in the construction of Jesus' rebuke, it's, it's basically as if a man would address his pet. It'd be no different than when you have a dog that's barking and you just go out and you go, sit, boo-boo, sit. This is what Matthew was telling us. Jesus Jesus basically gets up and he looks out at this storm and he goes, sit. And unlike as Stormageddon, as you watched it, we could see as the system moved out, the winds slowly subsided and the snow. When Jesus says, be quiet, instantly the storm was over. It went from category five hurricane to glass. Now stop and think about that for a second. Let me give you an idea. Paul did this the last time he preached to give you an idea of creation and its power. Our telescope, the one that we can see the furthest away, tells us that our universe is 4 billion light years and we haven't come to the end of it yet. This earth that you and I are now in this room, in this building, sitting here, spins at 1,000 miles per hour on its axis. The planet itself travels 1,000 miles per minute through its orbit. And the energy of our sun is estimated to be 500 million, million, billion horsepower. And there are at least 100,000 million other suns in our galaxy, most of which are larger and more powerful than our sun. And then if you want to look in the other direction, look inward. A single teaspoon of water contains a million, billion, trillion atoms. 
which are also made up of smaller particles of energy. Is it any wonder that the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power. That's why R.C. Sproul said, there is not one maverick molecule in the creation of God. Job, in the book of Job, God asks Job 87 questions. And the psalm, psalmist in Psalm 107 said, For he commanded God and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still. And the waves of the sea were hushed. And then they were glad that the waters were quiet. And he brought them to their their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. That was written in Psalm 107, almost 700 years before Matthew chapter 8. This happened for the disciples. Jesus wants them to understand something. If you are aware of God's power and love, then you have absolutely no reason to be afraid of your circumstances. So God's power and love will take you through any storm, not always comet. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says, Therefore, let anyone think who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Why? Because no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape. Why? That you may be able to endure it. This is Jesus' promise that I'll take you through the storms of life. Do you see it yet? This passage is all about Christ, who Jesus is. And then finally, as we finish, when the who of Jesus truly grips your heart. See, what do you do when the mundane becomes your worst nightmare? And then it seems like Jesus is rebuking your fear. But then he displays his power. And then you get to see who Jesus truly is and it grips your heart. You see, the last verse of our passage, these men are now amazed again. They're in awe. Now they went from sinful fear to glorifying God fear, worshipful fear, the power of Jesus. Jesus' power is now personally attached to them. He's no longer the God who simply heals the sick and turns water into wine and all. Now he's the Savior who has rescued them. And we've all experienced this, right? The knowing this stuff and trusting this stuff can sometimes be very different. One old pastor said, the difference between heaven and hell is 18 inches, right? Between your head and your heart. I sometimes think for Christians, the difference between victorious living through the storms of life and just making it is this. I've experienced in my life. I've expressed myself to Debbie on countless times when I've said to Debbie in fear and anxiety, I know what I'm supposed to say. I know the verses I'm supposed to quote. I know the attitude I'm supposed to have. But I'm still afraid. Or I'm still tired. Or I'm still frustrated. 
And it's when I then learn that I need to say to God, I need to know you personally, not just intellectually. And so, by way of conclusion, after an epic storm, and some of you have spent hours shoveling, maybe some of you are experiencing the winter blues. After states of emergency. And then, tomorrow we're supposed to have 4 or 5 degrees Celsius and 10 millimeters of rain. It's going to be fun times tomorrow, isn't it? We're going to have our first full Monday with an entire city awakened. And then, let the opinion start. Open line, I'm sure, will be a buzz this week with what the government did right and wrong. What things they were supposed to do. But stop for a few minutes and consider yourself. I want you to realize something about this. Calvary, listen, our church should be an emergency room for anybody to come and bring all of their disease, all of their sickness, all of their struggles, all of their desperation, all of their fear, all their failures. You should be able to bring it in here and be completely safe. But may I add, though, we should start getting better. I don't want our church to just be an emergency room. Our church should be a hospital where you come for emergency medicine, but eventually you walk out healed. We often love the apostles, don't we? They were this bumbling bunch of rejects. They talked too soon, too much. They fought. They missed the boat. They got it wrong. They fought with each other, didn't listen to Jesus, boasted, then fell. They were a cowardly bunch and other stuff. But don't miss that the New Testament doesn't end with the Gospels. It begins with them. And that by the time Jesus walks through his death and resurrection, his ascension to glory, things within these men is already changing. In Acts chapter uh, 4 we read, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Down a few chapters later, And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in his name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Notice, but Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. They got better. They got better. But maybe the greatest example of this is Peter. Here is Peter. Lord, do you not care that we're perishing You know, in Acts chapter 12, verse 6, we read that Peter was sleeping between two soldiers in prison, bound with chains, and he was to be executed the next day. And we're told that Peter is sleeping. You see, Peter learned how to handle the storms of life. And he went from, oh God, where are you? To, oh God, you got this. For my mile one guys, it's like Peter was like, okay, Jesus is saying, hold my glass of water. You see, I want to ask you this. Are you more amazed by the power of Jesus than you are afraid of your life circumstances? One man has written that the answer to fear is faith. And many of us in this room have faith in Jesus, but it's not a faith that puts our rest to fear. Jesus is always better than our fears. And so we need to remember who Jesus is. And so my last things are this. 
Every one of you in this room finds yourself in one of three places. You're here this morning, and number one, you're having a position of no faith. This is the place of complete self-centeredness. But I want you to know that right here today, Jesus is calling you. He's telling you that I will rescue you from the storm of your sin, the storm of your hopelessness, and I will save you if you will but trust in me. I think many of you in this room deal with this one, which is little faith, where we allow our fear to control our faith. Maybe you're facing some sort of storm of life. Marriage, family, health, Money, friends, school, purpose, career, marital status, whatever it is. And you're so busy staring at the storm, you forget that your Savior can simply go, sit, boo-boo, sit, and calm it all. This is where I want us all to be. Number three, growing childlike faith. And I'm going to preach about this next week when our faith controls our fear. Paul told Timothy, For God gave us a spirit not of fear but of power and love and self-control. Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our love, Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. John might have said it best, and John, he says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. I can only illustrate it by this. Debbie had Piper up here, and I love watching her. She, by the way, she's very charismatic. Did you see her while Jen and them were singing and her hands were up? I'm training my first Baptocostal. We had the snowstorm, and the guys came by to help us shovel out, and Brandon and Stacy had Theo all bundled up, and he was out in the yard, and Theo was just moving around, and there was all kinds of places for him to be and all kinds of places that he shouldn't have been because the, kid, the guys were shoveling out our stairwell so we could get back into the basement, and that's a 13-foot drop from the way the drifters went to the bottom, and it's a concrete bottom. It was time to get Theo in, and he's all bundled up, and he looks like the Michelin man because he's walking like this. And I stood over there, and I'm straddling the two things. And so it's just me standing there, and then a 13-foot drop to disaster for Theo. And Theo comes looking, coming towards me, and I just said, Theo, come to Grampy. Or for me, he calls me Ginky. So I said, come to Ginky. Theo did not stop and go, now, Grandfather, I'd like to have a discussion about your power. If I come to you, do you have the physical abilities to hold me? Because that's a rather large drop. He just had the big smile and he just came at me because in his mind, Ginky said to come to him and I trust Ginky. Do you have childlike faith with your Savior so that the storms are raging around you? Maybe there's a plummeting fall that you think, I don't know where the end of that is, but God just says, come to daddy. Will you? Do you? I leave you with this last statement from a Puritan by the name of Brooks who said this, My grace, saith God, shall be yours to pardon you 
And my power shall be yours to protect you. And my wisdom shall be yours to direct you. And my goodness shall be yours to relieve you. And my mercy shall be yours to supply you. And my glory shall be yours to crown you. Thus ends the lesson. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you would speak to my friends, to my family, to my church family. As Jen and Leanne come and our instrumentalists to sing us out into this week, whatever it holds. Lord, I don't know what storms of life will hit everybody. I know about some, and they're real. And Lord, we will all visit various levels of desperation this week. But as Theo walked towards me yesterday, I pray that we would all walk towards you this week and simply trust you. Spirit of the living God, would you fall fresh on this church? Would you cause us to have our fear turn to faith and our faith rest in you? And may it be a growing childlike faith. And if there's anybody here hurting or wounded or needs love and prayer, if someone needs to be encouraged to know that you do care, help them to have courage enough to ask. In Jesus' name.